HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And about two weeks ago, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts made a historic decision in the case of Commonwealth versus Mattis and a companion case. The High Court of the Commonwealth decided that persons who were convicted of murder, who were between the ages of 18 and 21, cannot be sentenced to life without any possibility of parole, which is what the law has been for many years for those convicted of murder. With us in the studio, we have uh, Paul Rudolph and Ryan Schiff. They are partners in the newly combined Northampton-based criminal defense term of Strahern, Ryan, and Hoos. The case, again, Commonwealth v. Mattis. Paul Rudolph, let's start with you. Or would you prefer Ryan Schiff? One of you, please tell us, what did the court do and why did it do it? Ryan Schiff. Thank you, Bill, and thanks thanks for having us this morning. So I think maybe it's a good idea to start with just kind of like laying out what the situation was in Massachusetts before any of this happened. Sure. So Massachusetts, as you know, doesn't have the death penalty. But Massachusetts does rely more heavily on life without parole, sentencing people to spend the rest of their life in prison without any chance of ever getting out than almost any other state. And Massachusetts does that for first-degree murder. It also does that for any number of other crimes Mm -hmm. as well. And it is interesting, I think, for most people to know that the difference between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and manslaughter is a sliver, a case that in front of one jury is manslaughter, maximum of 20 years is first-degree murder in front of another jury. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, so Massachusetts, you know, may have fewer people as a proportion of the population in prison than a lot of other states. But of those people who are in prison, we disproportionately sentence people to die in prison. So this case, well, let's go back to 2013. 2013, the state Supreme Court said no life without parole for people who are under the age of 18. And the reason for that? Because just the way their brains are developed, the way they are psychologically developed, that you can't make these kinds of throw away the key and make this determination this person never can be released from prison based on what they do at such a young age. And prior to that, actually, (laughs) the Supreme Court of the United States making a decision with the same same holding, essentially. Yes, yeah, a similar holding. So one year earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court had said that there was no mandatory life without parole for people who are under 18, but they could discre- give discretionary sentences of life without parole to that age group. But our state Supreme Court went a step further and said, we're not going to let these judges decide, well, this kid should die in prison, and this kid, you have some possibility of parole 15 years from now. Instead, they said... This is just a decision that can't be made. There's no way a judge could accurately look at a kid who's 18, 19 years old at the time of sentencing and say, because of something you did when you were 17 or 16 years old, you're beyond hope. You should die in prison. So they said, we're going to get rid of those sentences altogether, and they have to have a parole hearing. So those parole hearings take place you know, some years in the future. For most of those people, it's 15 years later. And at that point... You have somebody who is a fully formed adult, and they can actually, the parole board can actually say, have you changed, um, and can you be released? A lot of people will say, 
two different aspects of this. A lot of mm -hmm. people would say, I think, well, wait, wait a second. Um, someone commits a horrible crime. Let's just say it really is no beyond all doubt first degree murder um, yeah. and committed. Uh, and they'll say, well, we don't have a death penalty. Life without parole is something that seems like a reasonable alternative to some people. What do you say to that? Okay, so I, I think I have two responses to that. The first response is, you know, my personal general feeling, which is that we shouldn't be throwing anybody away, giving up hope on anyone, no matter how old they were. But that's not what these cases were about. These cases were about this one specific age group and whether you can make those kinds of determinations, not about how bad their crimes were. Nobody was saying that um, life without parole in those cases, nobody was saying that life without parole is disproportionate compared to the crime. But you also have to look, is it proportionate to the person who committed the crime? And what the court was saying was, no, for this group of people, the reason that they're doing this kind of stuff is often because of their age of development or their stage of development, not because of something inherently or permanently wrong with them. So that you couldn't make these kinds of permanent decisions about whether they should die in prison. Because life in prison sounds like, well, life in prison, but it really means death in prison. Yeah, it is absolutely. a sentence of dying in prison. Yeah, one of the remarkable things about doing this work is that you get to meet people who are very young when they're first sentenced to these kinds of sentences. And you see immature kids, often really kids, physically underdeveloped, also mentally under, you know, just their psychological state is they're young. They want to read like Harry Potter while they're in prison. And then you also get to meet people who are 35, 45, even you know, 75 years old, who've now been in prison for decades and decades, and to see how transformed they are. And some of the most extraordinarily wonderful people I've ever met in my life have been people who've committed these terrible crimes when they were kids and now have developed into amazing people who care about the people around them, do extraordinary stuff for the people around them, and are some of the most intelligent, well-read people I've ever met. Let me so. turn from uh, Ryan Schiff to Paul Rudolph. Uh, they are partners in the Northampton-based criminal defense firm of Strayhorn, Strayhorn, Ryan, and Hoos. And I'd like to ask you, Paul, about the underlying theory of the case, which has to do with Kids, young people, uh, do not have fully developed brains, do not have fully developed emotional responses. There is a difference between a 19-year-old and a 35-year-old, and particularly when it comes to making life and death decisions, important decisions in crisis, um, the 18-year-old doesn't do as well. He's not the same person he will be after spending, say, 25 years in prison. Tell us more about the, in particular, the hearing you did in Superior Court, which created the record in front of the Supreme Judicial Court to make this historic decision that persons under 21 cannot be automatically sentenced to life with no possibility of parole. And we'll, later on in our conversation, we'll talk about that possibility. But first, let's talk about brain development. Yeah, so this is a decision that's really deeply rooted in science. And what the Supreme Judicial Court did, to their great credit, was they, they sent this case down to the Superior Court for the specific purpose of creating 
a record of what the most up-to-date scientific research shows about brain development in adolescence beyond the age of 17, right? They had already gotten rid of life without parole for people who were 17 years old or younger at the time of their crimes. And that decision was also based on the science that shows that people in that age group are more impulsive, more prone to risk-taking, um, more prone to influence by peers, particularly in situations uh, of emotional arousal, which is when most murders occur. And what they wanted to do was say, is this, is this true for, for older adolescents, what we call late adolescents or some people call emerging adults? And so we had a lengthy hearing in Superior Court, uh, three days, multiple experts, neuroscientists, developmental psychologists, um, uh, uh, recidivism uh, experts who all talked about what does <laughs> the brain, how does the brain function for people in this late adolescent stage, 18, 19, and 20 year olds. And the incontrovertible evidence with a robust body of research in this area, and this was not really even contested by the government uh, because it was so clear, shows that these people are prone to the same um, impulsivity, risk-taking, uh, peer influence that younger adolescents are. And it also shows that these people, as Ryan was talking about before, are also have great capacity to change later in life as they mature into full adults. And I just want to point out, Paul, um, that it's not just the Massachusetts uh, court, you know, the liberal Massachusetts court, which is not necessarily true at all, but uh, the United States Supreme Court, in a case in the early part of this century, decided the death penalty cannot be imposed by any state on someone who is a juvenile, as defined in state law, um, because there was actual thermal imaging that showed that the brain continues to develop until the point of 23 in the area of the moral reasoning portion of the brain. It was a very powerful concept at the time, and I think the springboard for what you folks have done so masterfully here in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's right. And, and the research since the Supreme Court said life said first that the death penalty is off the table for, for juveniles and then said mandatory life without parole is off the table for juveniles. Since, since that time, we're going back 10, 20 years, there has been a huge body of research that has developed looking at 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Some of it has looked at 21, 22-year-olds as well. And that research really is powerful and shows, as you said, through fMRI studies um, and MRI studies that the brain in the areas in the frontal lobe area where um, we, we make decisions and we you know uh, control our impulses, control our emotions is not fully developed. In terms of the legal theory, the your case, Commonwealth versus Mattis, is based on the Massachusetts Constitution and not the federal Constitution. Could you explain for us, please, the difference between the cruel and unusual punishment prohibition of the Eighth Amendment in the federal constitution and the cruel or unusual punishment provision in the Massachusetts constitution? Yeah, well, so you pointed out a textual difference, right? In Massachusetts, our constitution prevents cruel or unusual um, punishments, whereas in Whereas the Eighth Amendment prevents cruel and unusual punishments. But um, 
the court has actually never hung its hat on that textual difference. Instead, we have a the difference between uh, cruel, cruel and or, unusual versus cruel or unusual. Cruel or unusual is in the Massachusetts Constitution. Right, right. Uh, that textual difference has actually not, not been the key to leading to some different decisions in Massachusetts. Uh, instead, right, because the courts say and can mean or, and or can mean and. It happens all the time, right. at least in legal in the legal world. <laughs> right, right. You would think that that word would mean would make a difference, but you would be wrong. You would be wrong. Um, but we do have a very rich tradition in Massachusetts of our Supreme Judicial Court interpreting its own constitution in a way that sometimes in some areas provides greater protections for people than the federal constitution does. As, as do many other state, state uh, Supreme Courts as well. They find their constitution has greater rights than the federal constitution, particularly not surprising in Massachusetts since our constitution came first and the federal government based its constitution on our constitution and all that. Yes. Yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing, Bill. I think there's even more reason in Massachusetts than any – I think there's great reason in every state for Supreme Courts to be independently interpreting their own constitutions, particularly as the Supreme Court is more and more unwilling to recognize individual rights and especially the rights of those accused and convicted of crimes. Um But in Massachusetts, we have especially a really good reason for doing it because we have the oldest – Constitution that's still effect, in effect in the world, and it is the con- it was around before the U.S. Constitution. So why should we defer to what the Supreme Court has to say about the U.S. Constitution and not give our own state constitution its own effect and give more protections to our citizens here in Massachusetts? We are speaking with Northampton-based criminal defense attorneys Ryan Schiff and Paul Rudolph. They are partners in the newly. Uh, combined Northampton criminal defense law firm of Strayhorn, Ryan, and Hoos. We are talking about their case that they just won at the Supreme Judicial Court, which holds that persons under the age of 21 cannot be sentenced to life without any possibility of parole. If you committed the crime when you're 18, well, you're not automatically going to die in prison when you're 70, should you make it that long. So the question now is, what will happen to the two, more than 200 persons in Massachusetts prisons who are serving life without parole for crimes they committed when they were between the ages of 18 and 21. We'll find out the answer right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We're UMass 5 College Credit Union, and for over 50 years, what has been important to our community has always been important to us. So we offer no-interest farm share loans for affordable access to farm-fresh produce. We share your commitment to a healthy planet through low-interest solar loans and other green initiatives. And we proudly support the arts and local organizations that do good work, like survival centers and food banks. Together, we all make an impact. Learn more. Visit us online at umass5.coop today. Chronic pain can be very bossy. What do I mean? It tells you what you can or can't do. Sometimes it even has the audacity to keep you from working. I missed almost three weeks of work, and I was no longer able to play tennis. The pain was really debilitating sometimes. I missed Thanksgivings. Abby was ready to put the bossy bad back in her past, and that's when she discovered QC Kinetics and their non-surgical treatments for pain. 
QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in advanced regenerative medicine with tens of thousands of satisfied patients, people who have experienced real lasting relief without drugs and without surgery. It has just been the most life-changing, amazing experience. Not only life-changing, but career-saving. I get to continue to do the career that I love. I'm playing tennis again. Stop letting that joint pain boss you around. Start with a free consultation at QC Kinetics. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Hello, I'm Patrick Tutwiler, Massachusetts Secretary of Education. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted a lot of routines, including the habit of attending school every day. Even now, students are missing more days of school than before. But school can be a place to heal and grow, to be with friends, to have the support of a whole team of adults. Let's work together to make attendance a priority. School is where kids belong. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based criminal defense attorneys Paul Rudolph and Ryan Schiff. They've had more than 20 years' experience each in the field of criminal defense, not surprisingly, and they are the lawyers who successfully represented uh, former juveniles sentenced to life without any possibility of parole whatsoever in Massachusetts, and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has ruled under the state constitution's cruel prohibition against cruel or unusual punishment that that punishment, life without any possibility of parole, not after 10, not after 20, not after 30, not after 40, not after 50 years, is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. There has to be the possibility of parole. So, there are over 200 persons serving life without parole sentences who committed murders between the ages of 20, 18 and 21. What is going to happen to those individuals? What is this parole hearing going to look like? Let's start with Paul Rudolph. Yeah, so what's going to happen to them is they're going to simply get an opportunity, an opportunity to go before the parole board and prove to them that they deserve to live outside of the prison walls. Um, nobody is automatically getting out of prison. Um, and the parole board doesn't just uh, readily let people out. They really demand that people prove to them that they are reformed, that they have a plan in terms of what they're going to do, where they're going to live, uh, how they're going to make sure that they don't commit any future crimes. And, um, and people don't get out just like that. They, they really have to show that they are changed people. Um, and we have a, a lot of experience now with this because we had the juveniles who went from being sentenced to life without parole to then having an opportunity parole. Many of those people have come before the parole board. Many of them have proven to the parole board, not all of them, that they deserve to be released. And they have done extraordinarily well since, since being released. There are very few examples of people who have committed new offenses or violated non-criminal conditions of parole. So um, we are very hopeful that people will have this opportunity to, to show that they can live outside the prison walls and return home. Paul, Nick, sorry, Paul, Paul Rudolph, I just want to point out, a question was asked of me after we first covered this when the Supreme Judicial Court issued this ruling was, well, who else gets to participate in the hearing? I just want to point out that notice must be given 
by our law here in Massachusetts to the attorney general's office, to the district attorney in which the crime was committed, uh, in the, the region in which uh, the crime was committed, the police chief in the city or town in which the crime was committed, and the victims and the secondary victims, the family members of the victims of the crime. So. Uh, the parole board's going to hear from those other people. That's right. They're not just given notice. They're given an opportunity to, to be heard, and, and they often do come to those parole hearings and state their positions, sometimes opposition, but not always. I had a parole hearing where the, the victim's family came and said, we believe in second chances, and we've looked at your client's history in prison, and we've seen what extraordinary <laughs> progress he's made, and we believe that he deserves a second chance. Was that a homicide? That was, it was a murder. That was somebody wow. who was one of the first people who came before the parole board after juvenile life without parole was, was banned. Um, that client's been out almost a decade now, has, is living a, an extraordinary, normal, law-abiding life, um, and that's not atypical. But you're absolutely right. Um, and there are crimes that I think are, you asked this question about crimes that are truly horrific, that um, will make it very difficult for the parole board to grant parole for people. Um, but some of those people also reform and show that what they did was a function of their youth, not of some sort of depraved character. I think a lot of people are surprised to learn, and this is nationwide, persons who are released from prison who have been convicted of homicides, in particular murder, have the lowest recidivism mm -hmm. rate of any persons convicted of crimes, the lowest, mm -hmm. and that includes any crime. So my question is back to the hearing. Uh, everyone can testify, but what is the parole, not everyone, but everyone concerned, and Buzz gave the uh, list of the statutory persons who need to be notified. Uh, what's the hearing going to look like? What is the parole board actually going to think about it? So right. can you help us with that, with that, please, Ryan Schiff? Sure. So now we, you know, not only do we as lawyers have a number of years, you know, a decade of experience doing these juvenile parole hearings, but the parole board has a tremendous amount of experience doing this because they do parole hearings for other people serving life sentences, those who have the possibility of parole, like people convicted of second-degree murder. So we, these hearings are far more robust than the ones that people have who've been convicted of or been sentenced to something other than life in prison. They take place before the full parole board. They take place not at the prison, but at the parole board's headquarters um, in a hearing room. Um, they have investigators on staff who write up a full report about the person's um, progress in prison, the nature of their offense, everything you could possibly imagine about them. Nothing is held back. I've had cases where they're asking clients to tell them about the meaning of a tattoo on their left shoulder. You know, so they're looking at people's lives in such granular detail to make sure that they're not releasing people from prison who still pose a risk. Um, and one of the remarkable, so it is true that one of the big bases for this decision was susceptibility to risk-taking, bad decision-making during adolescence. But there's another side of it. Adolescence is both an age of great vulnerability, but it's an also an age of great opportunity. And people are much more likely during that age group to commit crimes, including homicides. They're also much more likely to change over the, in the coming years. So one of the things that has not been surprising, if you know the science, and this is contrary to the 
the non-scientific prejudices that people used to have in the 1990s, referring to young people as super predators, is that the opposite is true. This isn't people who are you know, horrible and beyond redemption because of these terrible crimes, but people who can change. So we have 2013, the court says no juvenile life without parole. We have about 80 people who went from life without parole to having parole eligibility. Most of those people, a majority of them, have now been released on prison, and they've done extraordinarily well. Almost only a couple of them have even gone back to prison. So this is a group that has gone out and not only led regular lives, but also contributed a huge amount to people who feel a real sense of owing something to society because of the crimes they committed. So we're lucky to have them out doing a whole lot to make their communities better places. And now we have 200 more people who, because of this new decision, are now going to be eligible for parole. And the parole board's going to do the same thing. I, we have a good parole board right now. We're lucky to have a good parole board. And um, I have a lot With of... With varied backgrounds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We have persons who are uh, trained in uh, psychology. We have yes. police uh, backgrounds. There, It's a whole range on the parole yeah. board. That, and we have exactly. a member from Western Massachusetts as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it used to be that it tended to be a bunch of former prosecutors and law enforcement people. And those people are still there. But we also have, you know, there's seven members. And we have a member who has a PhD in psychology. We have a member who is a social worker. We have a member who's a former probation officer. You know, people who really bring a broad, you know, we have a former criminal defense lawyer. We have people who are bringing broad experience to this task and none of them want to make a mistake. But Is it a majority vote? Uh, so it depends on the date of the offense. The law changed. I see. And I can't remember what the date is for the cutoff, but for the more recent cases, it's a supermajority. They have to get five. Five or seven. Yeah, for the pr cases that predate that change in the law, it's a majority. So uh, t tell me this. I think... Uh, it would, there's a piece of the decision about when persons who committed crimes between the ages, these crimes, between the ages of 18 and 21 can be considered for parole. Tell us what the court said, if you would. Let's go back to Paul Rudolph. Um, so there, there's a date, I believe it's July 25th, 2014, when the, uh, legis when the legislature enacted a new sentencing statute for juveniles convicted of first-degree murder. Um, that was following the decision uh, to bar life without parole for juveniles. And um, so people who were convicted prior to that, people whose crimes occurred prior to that date, those people will be eligible for parole after 15 years. People whose crimes occurred after the date of the juvenile first-degree murder uh, sentencing statute will be subject to that statute. And so when they become eligible for parole actually depends on the theory of first degree murder under which they were convicted. Some of those people will, won't actually be eligible for parole until 30 years after, the, after their- Extreme uh, atrocity and cruelty. Correct. Yeah. When will these hearings start? Um, we don't know yet. Uh, we hope soon because there's people who obviously are well beyond the 15-year parole eligibility date. Um, we, we do know that the state public defender's office is working with the parole board to um, 
get a full list of who is eligible for parole now and when those eligibility dates are and to begin scheduling those hearings. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, we've been in touch with the parole board and I, I think that they're going to take this seriously and they're going to get them as quickly as possible. I'm hoping it's months rather than longer than that. Um, and, and at the hearings, will there be expert testimony from psychologists or will it be based mostly on prison records? What, just flesh that out there, a little bit There more might for be us. expert testimony in some individual cases if, if individuals um, utilize experts and, and, and rely upon them for testimony. Uh, and there will be probably plenty of hearings without expert testimony, but um, really, as Ryan described, delving into the personal, the personal history of, of the individual who comes before the parole board. You know, one thing that I think is really important for us talking about this and also the parole board is to recognize this isn't just about adolescents. It isn't about law. It's about real human beings who committed terrible crimes and have extraordinary remorse for what they did, but they're human beings. I just want to add, often when the offense was committed, there was substance abuse involved or mental health issues involved and, and all kinds of stuff which comes up to parole hearing in a pretty complicated and sophisticated manner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the parole board looks at the crime itself and all of the circumstances of the crime, as well as the person's post-crime history. Northampton Criminal Defense Attorneys Paul Rudolph, Ryan Schiff, Thank you both so very much. Congratulations, and thanks for bringing more justice into our world. Thank you, Bill. Indeed. Thank you so much for having us. We'll be right back with Black in the Valley. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm